Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Jack McHugh. Jack is an electrical engineer, data scientist, and software developer from Newcastle, Australia. He is very passionate about open source software and data science, and is also looking for new ideas to try and develop. Jack, welcome to the show. Hey, how you going? I'm, I'm so happy to have you on the show here. Uh, just to kick it off, uh, let me ask you this. How did you first discover your passion for data automation and visualization? I suppose it was probably when I was a little kid, I always loved robotics. I just loved how watching things work by themselves where you didn't have to do anything. Uh, this was really inspired by a teacher as well at school. We got involved in putting the Lego kits together and we made an automated soccer team. That was probably the very first thing that I found. I, I love this sort of stuff. Uh, but I, for, for some reason, I always had in my mind ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to be an electrical engineer. I thought those tied in really well. Yeah. Um, I've been working as an electrical engineer for probably five years now and realized that I really like the software side and the data science side. So I've been doing more and more of that each and every year now. So that, and I just really, I love it. That's my passion. I do it at work, at home, every day. That's just me. Nice. And there, so it seems like your background in like that hardcore engineering discipline dovetails really well with software uh, or, or are you just making a path for yourself because of your passion? I, I feel like they both complement each other really, really well. So it's worked out in my favor. Yeah. But I, I don't see any reason why anyone can't get into the field that that's like, it's a pretty open end. Yeah. And everyone needs, if you've got some sort of domain knowledge that makes you even more um, profitable inside mm -hmm. your, your passion. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so happy you brought that up. Uh, it's one thing to be the master of these like programming skills, but if you've got that domain knowledge, I mean, that's, that's what sets, that's what makes you like gives you your superpowers basically. That's it. Programming is just like a side thing. Whatever you're good at, programming just enhances that tenfold. Yeah. That's the way I look at it, at least. Man, that's awesome. Uh, what would you consider your first success with automation and visualization? Probably my first success. I started working my first engineering job. I was an automation engineer for a water company. Um, we made dams and weirs operate automatically essentially so mm. so much water comes in let so much water out etc etc yeah um, and we had to build like little screens like interfaces touchscreen interfaces for the operators to come and say i want this gate open at this time etc um, i think i did about 200 to 300 of those and you had to do each of them individually and the, the software you had to use you could drag and drop the buttons and the text etc um, and there was one thing where we had to draw, have a button for each and every single spill gate that opened. Um, so this was my first like real, yes, I can finally use Python to, <laughs> to solve a problem. Uh, build a tool that dragged and dropped, accounted the number of spill gates and dragged and dropped a button on each time by itself. I didn't have to do anything. And I did like four, four and a half thousand buttons in an afternoon. Oh, so that wow. I didn't have to do that by hand. And I was ecstatic. I was like, this is awesome. I just want to do this every day. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Uh, do, are, have you heard of that inductive automation uh, ignition software? Ignition automation? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I first looked at that about 
five years ago now and it was just like a is it worth changing um at that time it wasn't really worth the entire system rewrite but i'm sure that they're probably killing it at the moment yeah we we actually use that i work in oil and gas and we have a very uh distributed like our equipment is you know could be over 200 square miles or something like that so it's uh that inductive automation they can they give you those uh human machine interface screens and it HMIs, yeah, that, that's yeah. what I was dragging the buttons on. That's what you're doing. Cool, man. That's uh, there's big there's big business in that type of automation. I think even to this, like, what do you think the trajectory is of that that um, like general career path? Like, is it growing? Would you say, or how would you? I think it's been growing for the past twenty years, and I can't see it stopping. There's only going to be more in automation, and yeah. more so that they get integrated in the software approach. Mm. rather than the the scatter and it's just going to explode really yeah somebody somebody once told me on this podcast if it's not automated it's broken i i totally agree with that (laughs) (laughs) cool man uh what was your motivation to digest all those python bite episodes over the course of 174 days so i probably had four or five of my friends and colleagues they were like because I'd never listened to podcasts before. I, I, it was never me. And uh-huh. I was like, oh, you, you love this sort of stuff. You should listen to these guys. They just like 20 minutes and you find out about packages and it's, it's awesome. And I was like, all right, I'll give it a go. And I listened to probably, I had, to, had a big drive. It was like an eight-hour drive in one day. And I just put it on the whole time. And I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to listen to this every time I drive. So much more. The drive went like an hour long and I'd listened to all of these things. And I had to keep asking like, like Hey Google, can you add this to my reminder list so I can look it up later on? And I was like, that's where I built my list from. It's just my Google reminders. Really? Okay. List. And then I just typed it into that post and then it had all the divergence when I found this package and I was like, oh, there's this one and this one. And I added those into the list as well. Huh. Wow. So, uh, man, that's, that's wild. What would you say is the most, uh, like memorable thing that you learned from that? Um, probably. GUI. GUI was my, I use it actually every day now. Okay. And it's, it's awesome. So what GUI does, I think it's by Chris, I can't pronounce his last name, but it's Kajil or something like that. Okay. Um, and you can wrap a CLI, so a command line interface, and it automatically produces a guided user interface and that's done. Um, and a lot of my work is I build at the moment, I build data processing scripts for big data analysis. So there's terabytes of time series. And then if I can just wrap a CLI on that, wrap, wrap the GUI around the CLI and then put an executable on top of that, that's that entire tool chain done and it's automated in my CI, CD. So all I have to do is focus on the data side and just hit build and it's done. I've got an executable I can send to anyone and they can run. Dang. Yeah. GUI. Uh, so does that, that sits on top of click or, or is it just, a? Uh, I think it sits on top of arg pass. Oh, okay. Okay. G O O E Y. So, but nonetheless, it basically turns your CLIs into GUIs. Fully functional GUIs. Yeah. Dang. Cause a lot of my, the user base that I have at least is very much, they just want to click buttons, point it to, Excel files, CSV text files, and have it spit out another Excel file or a picture or a visualization and it's done. Yeah. 
Dang, that's awesome. Oh, so one of one of the ones I'm most mm -hmm. my most exciting one I've done for work lately is I built one that. So the application of it. So the team we have at work does air quality analysis. So how many, how much dust, how much pollutants in the air. And they had a project where it was to to see the air quality impacts of airplane shows where they do loop the loops and barrel rolls and etc. Like that. Mm -hmm. So we got the air quality analysis of that from the little like 10 receptors in the field. They sent us the black box of in the plane so we could get the 3D coordinates as it flies around. Yep. And then we had to build an interactive visualization so they could see how the air quality pans out as they do the loop the loops. And I put all of that into, I, I used pandas and Plotly and I made like a, you could press play on it. It was like an animation which you could interact with and you could watch the plane fly up and down and you see huh. all these contour plots as it, you could see as it, the plane came down, the contour would spike in that location so that the air crowd's probably getting covered in smoke. <laughs> that, that was probably my most exciting one I've done recently. That I re everyone's like, oh, this is awesome. Huh. Rather than just looking at blobs on a on Google Maps, watching a blob move. Yeah. It's much more exciting to see how the plane interacted with it. Holy cow. So, um, so the little package stack there is basically... Pandas, Plotly, uh, GUI, that, that's about GUI it. GUI and Pi installer to make it okay. the executable so they can put in the new, when, it, when they come back to it, they can do a new area. They can put in a different contour plot for the air quality and a new black box coordinates and they have their new visualization and they don't need to come back to a programmer to sit there and change the code and run it. But if they want new stuff, obviously they do. Yeah. And that's where I come into it. Oh man, that's, that's super cool. How long have you been doing this for in case somebody is like inspired by your message? Do they, are they like six years behind you or 16 or six months? I think I've been programming probably professionally for four years. Okay. Probably as a hobby, I started when I was probably 12. So that's probably, that's 10 years now. But that yeah. was dragging and dropping in Lego Mindstorms and then building little things to play games automatically for you, like Doodle Jump and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. I, yeah. I feel like anyone could get into it. With You just have to take a bit of time to get your head in the mindset of programming and logical steps. If you can break things down into steps, that's all programming is. doesn't matter what the language is, the software. That's all you need to get started, I believe. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for the perspective there. And uh, what does it take, in your opinion, to create a compelling blog post? A compelling blog post? I think the, the most feedback that I get are the ones that have interactive or even just a GIF of a visualization. People love being able to see things. Um, I'm, a, I'm a very visual learner when it comes to programming, so I love trying to plot the data and then interact with it in that phase. And if I can put that online so that someone else can interact with it, they absolutely love it. So I feel like that's the most compelling way to make a blog post. And that's definitely backed up by one by Harry Stevens last week on the coronavirus outbreak. He built it in with D3, which is a JavaScript package, where it had just bouncing balls and mm. 
two of them started out infected and if they ran into another ball, they were infected and you could see the curve. And I, I'm pretty sure Barack Obama shared it. I think it's it's the most viewed Washington Post blog post of all time now. So data visualisation and interacting with the reader is the biggest thing when it comes to that, I believe. Wow, that's some awesome that, that's some awesome insight. I think I saw that one too. It was like they they tried to simulate uh, social distancing with like some sort of like a yeah. barrier and yeah. Yeah, and then the barrier slowly opened for one of them and then they had ones where people were isolated so they couldn't it couldn't bounce around. Yeah. Oh man. That's the one. That's that's some really cool insight. So when it comes to uh, data visualization with Python, do you find yourself kind of gravitating back towards certain packages? Because I know there are a handful of options. Yeah, so in my experience, matplotlib is probably like, it's like a toolbox and there's a billion tools in it and you might not know how to use all of them. But if once you've spent enough time, you can know which tool to use when, it's like the most powerful thing ever. Okay. So I think that's where matplotlib sits in the visualization. And then there's like Plotly and Bokeh, if you've heard of those. Mm -hmm. um, and they're really good for building interactive. You can export as HTML, which it just inserts the JavaScript for you. So you don't even have to touch JavaScript, which I really like about it. Um, and they're like the next level up for making interactive visualizations for the web. I find Bokeh and Plotly are awesome for that. Okay. Uh, but Matplotlib is just every tool you could see. You just have to kind of know, and it's a bit tricky to pick which tool to use when. So people get really frustrated with that, myself included. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, that's they're, they're the packages that I always come back to. Cool. Uh, so another really good mm -hmm. one, sorry. Oh, go for it, man. Another really good one that I've used a lot is Pandas Bokeh. It's just oh, okay. Pandas dash Bokeh. So you, I spend a lot of my time in Pandas data frames and all this what this does, it just extends functionality. So you can have a data frame and just go dot plot bokeh and you've got an interactive visualization done. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome for me. It's like cheating. I don't cheating. have to worry about setting up figures or anything. <laughs> it does it for you. It's awesome. Yeah. Oh, man, that's cool. Uh, okay, so for someone starting out to uh, trying to like make money with their programming skills, what is the strategy that you would recommend? Um, I think... In business in general, um, so I've been running my own freelancing software company for probably nine months now, just on the side to my full-time job. Um, and the biggest thing in business that I've found over the time is pick one thing and stick at that. If you try and spread yourself thin and say, you're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to do this, people are like, oh, I don't really know what you do. I, I, if you just say, I do one thing and I do it right, people come back to you for that. Mm. So my, my niche is just automation. I make numbers go in one side and the numbers come out the other. That's what I do. Uh, there's not much more that that's, that's my focus. I find that's the best way. Once you've found what you enjoy and your niche, just stick at that. Don't spread yourself too thin. Um, and understanding what the client wants before diving into a solution is massive. If you can be the, be the gap between software and the use to bring them together, that's, people absolutely love that, especially people that don't use computers all day or might not 
that word is the biggest thing they use and that's scary to them. Mm-hmm. If, if you can bridge that gap to make a, a one button solution or as simple as possible, they'll come back time and time again. And if you can turn that in, you could be a software as a service and make that a recurring thing. So you can just sit back and it hit run. It, it could even hit the computer hit run for you and it sends the answer to them. It sends the bill with that along. Uh, <laughs> I find that the most profitable business model you can find, I think. Hmm. Excellent, man. Thanks for sharing that. What do you see for the future of interactive visualization? I, th- I think we're still early days in mm-hmm. the wide acceptance of just how powerful it is. Um, I think we can see that with Google buying, I think it was Looker, a software like that. There was some stupid amount, like $10 billion or something like that. Okay. Uh, so the bigger companies in the world are also realizing how big data visualization is. Uh, the amount of jobs that at least I see in the Australian market as well of just people looking for anyone that can even just produce charts in Excel. Um, it's, there's, it's grown exponentially every year because hmm. people realize how engaging it is to users. If they can say, all right, you've got this many people coming into your building and you can make some interactive plot and they can understand that without having to read a, a 400 page paper on the findings. That's massive. If someone can just look at it and then you could also bring in the domain expertise of other people so they can look at it and go, Oh, I can draw this conclusion out of that. That's huge. Mm. So one, one project I did recently for, to where I live in Newcastle, Australia is called the Hunter Valley or the Hunter region. Um, and we did a project for the councils because it's broken up into multiple councils um, to build a, or just to use statistics. So our census in Australia to try and understand which are the most vulnerable communities so that the emergency services can respond adequately, adequately in the right places. Yeah. Uh, I used pandas, pandas bouquet um, and geo pandas which is a geographical extension of pandas and built an interactive HTML plot where you could just hover over and see a chloropleth or a heat map of where the most vulnerable communities are. Um, We did the same project five years ago for the client and just produced a static PDF map of the region. Um, And they saw this one and they were like, this is exactly what we want. This is amazing. And the amount of times we've sat in there with the client and they can go, oh, that one's really hot over there because this reason and that reason, there's so much brain there and that all comes down into the valley from that. Like that's something as a programmer I wouldn't have a clue about that had right. come to that conclusion, but they absolutely love that. And then they can send that on to their colleagues and their colleagues and they can draw their own conclusions, which helps the community become more resilient for disaster planning. Hmm. Wow, that's that's an amazing story. I'm curious uh, so with those types of, uh, deliverables is the data, it's all packaged into the HTML or is it somehow like plugged into like an API or something? So for these particular examples, our client really loves things that don't connect outside of their networks. Okay. They're government agencies. Um, so they have, a, they had a big restriction last time in that it had to be a PDF so that it didn't connect to an external database so that the network engineers didn't say, 
or jump up and stamp their feet. Stop connecting to everywhere. We'll get broken into. Yeah. Um, so for this one, we packaged it all inside just one HTML file. Um, and I, I think I used something like 900 gigabytes of data to build the analysis model. And then the results out of that, I could compress down to 20 meg so I can fit in an attachment of an email. So they, wow. they were stoked about that. That's amazing. Yeah. Dang. That's, that's really awesome. Uh, just don't have to stand up servers and APIs and have to worry about all of that. They just have one file. And sometimes it it sort of feels like they're paying a lot of money for just one HTML file. Uh, But when it's that versus a static PDF of just a map, they they still say, this is awesome. I love it. Yeah, man. It's a, it's an amazing story. There's, um, uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear, or I'm happy to hear that you shared that just to kind of give people some perspective on what types of deliverables people are actually paying money for. And, uh, that's amazing, man. Thanks for sharing that. I think a, a great pin- principle to keep by even just in any deliverable in anything is just, just the kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. If it, as simple as possible. And if they can still get the same benefit out of that, then that's, that's it. I, I'm pretty sure that's one of Google's main mottos with all their interfaces. I find everything really simple to use. Yeah. Uh, the more simple and intuitive you can make something, the more it'll be appreciated by the end user. Hmm. Dang. That's gold, man. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, what is the business case for evolution algorithms? Or what, what do you think the business use case would be for that? Um, so I suppose for people out there that don't understand what evolution algorithms are, it's essentially you have it, you start off with a random population, um, and then the best performers at that task, like say the top 10%, they go on to breed the next population. And then that's sort of a bit more randomized, but targeted towards the better suited. And you repeat that over and over, just like life for millions of iterations, billions of years, if you want to put it that way, and you should have something that's just as good as a human, you would hope. Um, I suppose one business case that I had used for my thesis when I was at uni, um, I built a little black box that goes in between the PowerPoint on your wall or the power outlet and an appliance, so like a fridge, TV, washing machine, dishwasher, etc. It tracked how much power that used and put it through your Wi-Fi network back to a database. And then I wrote an algorithm, which was based on an evolutionary algorithm to try and work out what the best time of the day to use all those appliances. Because in Australia, I'm not sure if it's the same in America, but we have time of use pricing. So in the middle of the day, prices are a lot more. When everyone comes home from work, prices are more. In the middle of the night, prices are cheap because no one's using it and they want to be able to balance the load across the network. Um, so this worked out what the best time in the day for everything to run was. And then using my electrical background, I could build the box and have it interface back through the Wi-Fi network to turn things on and off at those times. And it projected savings of 50% in energy prices. Wow. If you scale that up to a, a building or an office, that's huge. Yeah. That's absolutely huge. Or a factory, et cetera. And I used evolutionary algorithms to try and optimize that schedule. So you can, those 
a thousand ways to optimize things. Evolutionary algorithms is one of them. And I really love the interaction between like neuroevolution and computers. If we can sort of intertwine the two, that I really love that. And it's just something special to me. That's why I also just love neural networks because that's exactly the same premise. Man, that's, that's, I mean, that sounds like a really awesome idea. Did you ever try and take it to the market or anything like that? I had plans to, um, but I just, I've been too busy writing blog posts. (laughs) (laughs) Man, that's, that's a really cool story. Thanks for sharing that. What excites you uh, most about, computer vision or like where we're going with computer vision? Uh, I think one of the ones that I think is a bit outside my understanding and probably a lot of people's understanding is the latest one on Kaggle from the creator of Keras. I think his name's Francois Cholet. Um, Just to build a model that understands things full stop. That's it. That's what, what it tries to do. And I think that's, it's way above my understanding. Um, but if they can achieve that in say the next decade, that's unreal. Being able to just show something to a computer and it understands it like we do is like unreal. I think that will be that, that really excites me in the term of artificial intelligence is if we can get to that stage, that's awesome. Another really great thing that I saw from DeepMind, I think it is at Google now, or OpenAI, I don't know if they're the same thing. Um, they finally released their movie on AlphaGo on YouTube about hmm. a week ago now, where you can go and see how they built the model to try and verse Go players, the board game, and how Lisa Dole was feeling when he lost 4-1 in 2016. And I found that really awesome just to see the from both sides, how everyone was really nervous that the computer was going to beat him and how it came up with really creative and new solutions. Like Go's been played for 5,000 years or something like that. And it was pulling out moves that no one, everyone was like, that is stupid. Why would anyone do that? And beating the world's best player that's won the eight world championship 18 times in a row. I think that's incredible. <laughs> Oh man, it it says a lot uh, for the whole like, you know, ego being the dangerous, most dangerous thing to have in business. It's like, you th- if you think you know it all, you think you know the best go moves, like you're in for a treat, you know? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and it, it it's actually, I, I'm, I think it's brought new moves into like the professional go scene oh, wow. that were lo- previously saw as their rubbish moves. Why would you do that? but it used them that effectively, they were like the next level. So I think it goes from, you can become a one, one Dan to nine Dan is how high you are on the ranking board. Uh-huh. And there were people commenting that were ninth Dan. So the best 1% in the world. And they were saying, watching this computer play is like 11 and 12th Dan, like something that we can't even comprehend yet. Oh, wow. I, I find that really incredible. And then the, I think they came out four years later and they built a model that can build, beat the AlphaGo and it was trained in 12 hours. Hmm. So that's incredible, I find. Yeah, that, I guess something else that I thought of when you were sharing that was um, maybe it serves as a template for 
uh, like humans can benefit from like, yeah, maybe that's scary. Cause that thing is like kicking everybody's butt, but <laughs> people are learning from it. Like it's making them better. Yeah. If, if a computer can come up with a creative solution that maybe we hadn't thought of before and we can learn from a computer, I find that incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with you. Especially for the programmers behind it. Cause I, I could probably say that maybe most of them probably had never heard of go before they started working on that project and it probably taught them a lot of things. And then it taught even the people that have been playing this their entire life. It taught them things. If they just the full spectrum of it, if they can do that, that I feel like that's the future. And that's what really gets me excited about getting involved in the community of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Awesome. So I was curious, how do you self-educate? My biggest thing that I've found all the way through is I find something that I want to do. So like in the first place where I really found a use for Python was I wanted something that could click buttons for me, essentially. Uh, and then just working towards that solution, I find that's the best way to learn something. If you actively want to do something and you can sort of break it down into steps and then you can either get help from professionals or other friends, colleagues to try and break those steps down a little bit further and then you can slowly build and build and actually get to your solution in the end. Absolutely. I think that's the best way to learn yourself. Uh, one of those things was I never knew how to build a website um, and I slowly pieced together HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and I use Pelican for my blog. Mm -hmm. um, and now I can write a Jupyter notebook of a blog post and I can go into some crazy idea that I had that week and try and work out how it works. And all I have to do is save that in a folder now and push it into GitHub or Bitbucket or anything like that. And it builds all the website for me. I don't have to worry about that. I, I was absolutely stoked when I first come to that. And it worked. Uh, it's something I use every week now. Uh, I think my my latest blog post I wrote was the question coming to my mind of how many words have I written? So I'm up to this was my 56th blog blog post. So I've been trying to do it every week for over a year now. And I went. I said, how many words have I written? I don't know. So I wrote a Python script that opens Markdown files. It opens Jupyter notebooks and just splits the strings inside those into arrays and counts the length of the arrays to get how many words are inside it. I think it turns out I wrote something like 34,486. Uh, in comparison, my thesis, which I spent a year writing, was 9,916. Um, and my the next thing that I really want to, that I'll be doing to self-educate myself is I want to make that into a, a Python package, put it on PyPI, et cetera, so that I can integrate that into how it builds my website. So I can have this little counter down the bottom of the website that says there's 56 posts, there's 34,900 <laughs> words this time. Yeah. And then it just does that automatically each time. That's what really gets me excited about programming and why I'm so passionate about it. Hmm. Yeah. We just went full circle there. So it's kind of like you're, it's like meta, it's like many layers of meta, like you're using your work 
to do analytics and then you're writing blogs on the analytics of your work and then you're going to make a package out of this thing which then you can use on your blog i mean that's that's beautiful Please man Talk get the analytics of analytics <laughs> of analytics <laughs> it's like uh I, I think gary v talks about like repurposing your content uh it to and to come up to come up with um to be a little more prolific with content creation and i think you're you've officially taken this to like the next level <laughs> <laughs> that's cool man and if, if it get if it gets you excited and then once you if you want to spend time on it i find that and you, you can use that later on to help other people um so one thing i also did recently is a lot of my um, colleagues sent me the link to crowdfund covid19 so that we can you could just sign up to say if you're an engineer a mathematician or anyone you type in data for them okay and you can help these researchers find um solutions to try and help with the pandemic that we're facing at the moment um and i happily put my hand up and said i love doing this stuff if this helps someone else even better hmm what where what is that? I'm trying to look it up right now. Um, I'll try and find it again. It was crowd fund, crowdfightcovid19.org. Crowdfight. Oh, cool. And you cool. can just volunteer your time to try and help these researchers find solutions to help other people in the world. Hmm. Yeah, that's amazing, man. I'm going to have to check that out when we get off the show here. Um, cool. So what is your strategy for growing your professional network? Um, I find the, my blog posts, especially writing a blog, just showing people your thought process and if they can use it for something as well. And if you put it out there for free, um, people like, I don't know, since I started my blog, I probably got a hundred times as many job offers as I normally just would just out of, out of the blue. Hmm. Random people saying, hey, what are you doing this week? Do you want to catch up? And we'll talk about having a job here. And I'm like, sure, <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try, try and do that. <laughs> I find if you can, it's, it's really, um, what's the word? If you really expose yourself, if you put your learning journey out there, um, and the mistakes you make, if you're not afraid to show that you do make mistakes and you can build with people because if you, one thing about the internet is if you say something and it's wrong, a thousand people will come to tell you you're wrong. Um, so if you make a mistake in your learning journey, while some people find that really hard to take in that, oh, I have to be perfect all of the time. That's why I'm not sharing anything. I find that is probably the biggest detriment you can do to yourself. Hmm. And if you can put yourself out there, expose that you make mistakes and show that you're willing to learn and grow, that many people come out to see you, come and they message you, call you, et cetera, to get involved, then your network grows. And if you can expose yourself out there like that, those people will share it with their friends and their colleagues to say, hey, I know this guy that solved this problem. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people have said to me is, oh, but you're giving away all your trade secrets. If everyone knows how to do what you do, what 
how's your business going to work then? Uh, and the way I think that's really wrong, I, I, I think it would be really positive to everyone if we could openly share our research, our analysis, our programs to build the open source software, just open source in general. I feel like everyone gets uplifted by that, not just the people that hide their secrets and try and keep all that profit to themselves. While it obviously works in a lot of scenarios, I find it really detrimental. And if we can go out there and share it, so many more people are going to get excited about it. And the way I look at it from a business perspective is I can write about these things and more people will realise, hey, if he can do this, he could probably do this really, really hard thing that I don't understand. Like I might be able to solve my problem with this little part and this little part from the internet. But then the consultancy side, I suppose, comes across where if you're known that you can solve all these range of problems, uh, people will come to you for the really tricky ones and then that works out in your favour if you get excited by the really tricky problems because then you get to work on them all the time and that's a, that just, it just builds and builds. That's, mm. that's why I love about it. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent way of looking at it. I think, uh, well, even just on, reflecting on myself, like, you, like I, fear, I fear things, maybe some, some things that are, doesn't make sense to be afraid of. And uh, that being one of them, it's like, okay, well, first of all, like, <laughs> like, like if you're just starting out, like just being, just being real with you, you probably don't have like the, the million dollar script or something like that, you know? So like, what's the yeah, risk, you know, other people are going to learn from you. And then, yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends on what your, your goals are. If you're, if you're trying to monetize your intellectual property, there's, you can be creative about it is what it is what it, I'm hearing from you. Like you can maybe focus on the consultancy side and then just kind of build your domain, like your authority in the, uh, on the internet by providing this, this, uh, stuff with like a, a permissive licensing. So. Yeah, that's it. Like I'm sure that there was plenty of people that developed like Guido Van Rossum who developed Python in the first place. He probably didn't set out to build a programming language that he could make money from, but then he probably made his career out of something that he made for fun. Um, and if you could do that, that also ties back into your well-being. Like you'll be more happy with your career. And if you're more happy with your career, you'll be more productive. And if you're more pro productive, you make more money. Uh, it just really works out in the favor. You're like you'll never, like you probably will still have a bad day sometimes where you can't solve this this bug or whatever, you spend eight hours banging your head against the screen and the keyboard going, why does it work like this? Mm -hmm. But every other day of the week, you probably had a great time and you're working on stuff that you love and you're working with the tools that you do in your, might've done in your spare time as well. So it just works out for your career and your own mental health and health and well-being. It just works out, I feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they... Uh, another thing, like I'm definitely like a DIY person. Like I just love to do DIY stuff. So, but not everybody's like that. So there's like, if you, if you're afraid somebody's going to take your idea, for example, like you're kind of assuming that they're kind of like you, like some people just want the answer. They want this thing solved and they don't have time to, they don't, they don't want to, they don't want your code. Okay. They, they just want yeah. a solution to their problem. So the biggest, biggest thing in software that I've found that I find more and more 
is, and that I tell also like other junior developers that I work with, is the user doesn't care how it works. If it's some hacky way to get to the solution, if it gets to the solution, that's all we care about. If yeah. we can, like, if we have to tie in all like later development and further integrations, like that, that, that comes into the more the software engineering side where you want to be able to lay out the foundation so that you can build on it later. But if you're just doing one little thing for one person that they want just a button that they can go, all right, I want to know how many times someone walked into this building uh, when the sun was at 43 degrees and they don't want to sit there and work all that out. And you can make one thing that just goes calculate. Oh, they'll go, whoa, my mind's blown. That's unreal. Can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? Yeah. Huh. That's awesome. Uh, what would you say is the big domino that if you could knock that over, it would turn your side business into like a full-time job? Um, I think for, for me at least, it's just the size of reach. Like, so the scalability, that's probably the biggest domino. If you're working with a product, that's probably even more so. If you can scale your product to work for not just like your community or your industry, but everyone, then that's more so than just a side business. Then that's like an, an empire, mm -hmm. which you could build. But I think for a consultancy sort of work uh, or like just lab labor work, where you're building tools for people, um, the more so you can set up so it's less involved by the both the developers. So the developers can spend their time understanding what the problem is they're trying to solve. And then they can just slap all this foundation that you've spent all this time automating. So like, that's why I absolutely love GUI and Pi Installer and Pandas. So you don't have to worry about all those little pieces that get to your problem. You focus on just your problem and all the other cogs turn. If you can set up that so that's smooth every time for a user and you can get down to the crux, they'll come back to more and they'll refer you on to their friends and their colleagues. And you can just smoothly build all these things, spread them out. Uh, if you follow the licensing sort of business model, then you'll make much more than if you just build software and sell it each one-on-one. -on -one. Hmm. Cause then you, you lower your barrier of entry for a new user to come along and say, all right, I want to build this. Like if I'm just a, a one person company, I'm not going to go to Atlassian or Google to say, can you build this thing that calculates how many steps I've done in a day? Okay, uh, they'll probably say, all right, we can do that for you. Have you got $50 million? Uh, probably not. You want to try and reduce the barrier of entry for new users and try and make it as smooth as possible to be scalable. Hmm. I think that's the best way to build a strong business foundation. Hmm. Wow. I, don't, I, I might even need to listen to this again. I feel like you're dropping some major knowledge bombs here and I'm it just it's it's really uh it really fascinates me to uh build these types of like pretty much automated income I wouldn't 
I wouldn't say, I mean, there's obviously a ton of hard work that goes into it, but um, it seems like that's just the best. Like if you're going to put your time into something, that's the best way that you could go about um, building, yeah, building an empire or. I don't like, know the, like Warren, Warren Buffett's quote, if you can make money while you sleep, that's the best way to make money. Yeah. 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 I couldn't agree more with you on that one. And the, oh. the richest people in the world are all people that have passive income, I find. Mm-hmm. So if, that, if you can make that your goal and then you spend your active time doing the things you love. And if the things you love also make you money, that's great. But if you can spend your time enjoying things you love in life, like your family, getting outside, doing activities you love, well, that for me is programming, which makes money for me. So that, that's, that's great for me. Um, but if you can spend your time, your life will be, I feel much happier and your mental health will be in such a better place. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful, man. Um, let's see. So once you discovered that automation was possible with programming, how did it change the trajectory of your career? Um, I think it's, it was probably, I was like, oh, I could probably get good at automation and that could make my interest in building robots and I suppose they're automated as well. So maybe maybe when I realized I could do it not only for hardware things, so making a robot pick up a ball and put it in a box or play soccer for me, um, once I realized I could do that on the computer as well. So if someone says, oh, I need you to type this 1,000-word report and then format it in all these ways, and if I could just write a program that just one-click formats it all each time, that was like, that was my light bulb moment in life where I was like, right, I could do this with anything. And then following the guys like Open GPT 2 and stuff like that, where they can write those 1,000 words as well, hmm. then you're taking the human element out of it, but you're also building new and creative things for people to learn upon, which I, that's just, that's really gets me excited every day. Hmm. Wow. How do you make sure that you can carve out time for loved ones when you're, cause I mean, this is not an easy skill set to build, right? Um, I feel just like everything in life, everything in moderation. Um, if you can find some sort of balance, same as if you like playing sport or you like driving cars around, you like doing all these other things, you'll eventually find sometimes where you probably tip the balance out of favour in favour of one or the other. Uh, but as long as you're not, uh, for, for some people that I've come across, they're like, I can't learn anything unless I spend 100% of my time on something. And if I don't spend, if I spend a hundred percent of time, I don't have any time for anything else. So I'm not going to do it. Um, but I always say to those people, if you spend 15 minutes, 10 minutes a day on something in a year, you'll be a hundred hours further than where you were if you didn't try at all. Mm, man. That's, that's the way I look at it. If someone says, Oh, I'm too busy to do something. I'm too this. Like, you could look at the parts of your life, like maybe you spend an hour on the toilet every day. Why don't you try reading into something you want to do? So you, you can do that at the same time. If 
you're going to buy a coffee and you walk an hour, why don't you listen to something like this podcast where you probably can brush up on the language and then like the terms used when talking about programming and then you can be able to look up those answers or ask someone else later on and they'll probably go, oh, yeah, I can piece that together. Then I want to build a window that has a button that does this X, Y, Z for me and probably someone that's got more experience in the space is like, oh, well, what about this? And they hit you with all these buzzwords and you don't know what's going on. But if you can, like, there's that many resources out there where you you can passively engage with and you can build these things and you probably don't even have to spend that much time and then you have a greater appreciation and understanding for when you do spend those 10 minutes, five minutes a day going, all right, I'm going to try and make my website say hello on it. That's a, that's a massive thing for anyone to do with programming. And once you can see you can write things to make a computer work, I find that huge. Mm. That was the, the inspiration. I had a lot of people probably in the last few months saying, how do I get started in programming? So I've done a blog post on what I believe is the great resources for getting started. Just like books like uh, Automate the Boring Stuff by Al Swigart, where you could just let the computer do the hard work for you. That's that's what they're built for. That's why humans made computers. So we shouldn't spend our hard work trying to make them work. We, we get them to do the hard work for us. And that's massive. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, I don't think I've ever asked myself that, that question like why 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 are why did we create computers type thing uh i think i just take it for granted like uh it's just like an yeah. extension of my hands you know like but you bring up a you bring up a great point there let let them do the hard work for you and then you have more if you can say you do something once a week like your boss says to you, all right, I want you to make this spreadsheet and all these calculations and you spend an hour every week typing in the numbers and it's the same process every week. If you can automate that down to a button or a service that just runs at that time every week and you might have to make some little tweaks but you've just saved yourself an hour, then you can spend more time doing something else. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's programming. That's my passion about programming is giving people their time back that, you know, so that they don't have to spend locked down to a computer. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, everything that you're talking about here just kind of reminded me of a project called Apache Airflow. Have you messed around with that at all? No, I haven't heard of that one before. So Airflow, uh, I'm just on their website right now. It says uh, it's a platform. Uh, created by a community to programmatically author, schedule, and monitor workflows. So it's kind of like, it's not an ETL type engine, but it does do ETLs. But it's an, it's an automated workflow um, project. So yeah, if that's really you're cool. like an automator. So I figured you'd, have, you'd be able to appreciate this project. So check it out. Let me know what you think. I'll have to check it out. All the Apache stuff is absolutely unreal. It's yeah. the entire platform that people can build upon and share it openly with others. That's the that's where I would like the future to go. Mm-hmm. 
if everyone yeah. worked in closed source, I feel like we wouldn't be as far as we are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, I, I talk with, with a lot of people and they have different answers, but it's typically very polarized. You're either like very huge proponent of it or maybe not so much. But uh, one of the misconceptions that I had early on and somebody helped me work through this was just because it's open source doesn't mean you can't make money. Like you can yeah, make like money with it. You can still license it in, like put commercial license on it with like um, GPL, I think V3 is probably one where you can't commercial license, commercial use without a license. So you just want the people that want to play around with your software or the tool that you built, but you also want to try and make money from when they try and use it in big applications. Um, and probably for some people, that's probably their life careers tick that box done so that they just have all this. Then we come back to the passive income. You build things once and then people come on later on. They go, oh, I want to use this. But they also they might not see, they might say, oh, I want this feature added. And they could also pay for the feature added. You could put that as your business model for mm-hmm. something that you built for fun or even something that you built at work and then you augmented it in some other way to make it work for a different application. I think that's probably it. that that's correct. In a, a big misconception is if you make something completely transparent and how it works, doesn't mean that everyone can take that and run with it, especially with um, programming. One thing that I find a lot is because I'm involved in the data science and software development community as say I'm, I'm a meetup organizer, so we do a monthly meetup. Um, is that all the people I see around me are all software developers or data scientists. You don't, sometimes you don't see the other 99.9% of the world out there. Like you say, oh, just because I open some also open source something, these people can use it. But those people that can take that and run with it, it's still a tiny population of the world. And then they still have to have that interest or application to take your stuff and run with it so you're probably not that vulnerable when it comes out there um and even if if you're really worried about that there's that many models or examples of other people that you can take work from because they've open sources as well and make it work for your situation if you put your heart and put your life into something and you want to be able to profit off that, you can. There's no reason why you can't. And if you can open source it so that other people can slap new features in and stuff, that's only probably going to make it bigger and more profitable. Hmm. Amazing, man. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, What recommendations do you have for making sure that your customers are on the same page with everything that you're working on? Uh, I think from my experience is probably spending more, if you say you want, need four hours to work out exactly what they want, spending time with them, talking, going back and forth with an answer, like questions and answers, probably either double or triple that time of whatever your estimate is. Even if you've already doubled it before, you probably double it again, right? The more time, like 
that is allowable to spend and understand where the pain points are, why, if you can answer the why, what, how, when it problems, they'll probably come back with less questions later on to say, oh, why doesn't it work this way? I would have assumed or my understanding is what it would do this. Um, that saves you more time later on so you're not coming back and revisiting, oh, that doesn't work in that way. You might have to rebuild your own structure to make it work. You can just, if you can iron out all those kinks before you even start typing into an IDE or start programming, then you're worlds ahead of where you were before. And then if you can also come back and do regular check-ins to say, is it working the way you want? Does it do the things you want? What other features would you like to see? That could also, if they people really appreciate if you come back and say, is this what you wanted? Can I make changes? And they'll more than likely say, yeah, we're happy for you to, we're happy to pay you to build these new changes as well. Like, that's no problem. Because hmm. once you see a bit of software working, it kind of unlocks a door that says, oh, I can use it for this, 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 this too. Why, let's do it. Hmm. It, it just makes me wonder uh, sometimes, I guess with, uh, with working with people um, and maybe, maybe this gets back to the whole thing, like maybe not everybody's your customer type thing, but let's say somebody's kind of really antsy and they don't see the value or, or do they always see the value in you spending as much time as you possibly can understanding their pain? Um, I think for the, there obviously is the situations where people don't appreciate that they have to spend a whole day out of their week, like they're busy people, they want to spend it on something else, they don't want to spend a whole day or half a day just trying to explain their problem. But if you can shine the light on it to say, all right, I'll spend an hour with you now, but then I'll need to spend probably three times, four times that much time later on when it doesn't do how you want to do it and this will save you x much dollars i feel like they appreciate it a bit more <laughs> and if if you can show that oh, i used it for this application for this other person and it saved them this much time but we had to spend a bit more time understanding the problem they go all right they can save them 10,000 hours a year but they had to spend a week just nutting out the intricacies and the little things a week versus 10,000 hours every year compounding. I, I sort of see more value in this. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Just, uh, just show them the data, I guess. <laughs> if, if you don't preach what you work in, I suppose that's probably, you're not in the right space maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. What about um, when it comes to like testing? Do they, are they usually pretty open-minded to spending money on, on that? Or is, there, or is there ever like a scenario where you have to explain like, this is going to save you trouble down the road. It's like insurance, uh, but it's going to cost, you know, more money basically to, to build that out. Um, I find people sort of naturally understand that 
if something's being built or a report, you could put it back into if they're writing a report because some, mm. that's something most people have done. If you can refine it either earlier, like as soon as possible, so that you didn't have so many iterations and testing, then they'll probably appreciate it more. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that comes back to understanding the problem means the test part where the user comes in and actually tries to use it for their application will probably have less time trying to point out there's a hole, there's a hole, there's a hole, there's a hole. They can only point out one or two of those, then they'll save money there on as well. Mm-hmm. Save time, which inherently saves money on for companies. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks for sharing that, man. Uh, I was curious what type of code quality checkpoints are non-negotiable for your projects? Uh, probably for me is, I really probably don't care. I'm more of a, if it works, it works person. Um, for the larger software systems that I try to build, I try and sort of structure them in a way that it can be built upon later and ex- extensible. Uh, but they're all, if you don't have to do that, they're, I, I sort of look at it probably from the more hacky way and the user doesn't care how it works. Just make it work. Now, I suppose that's how I look at it. Like if there, there's all these automated things, like one that I use a lot is black, the formatter. Yeah. So other people can read it more easily. Um, if they're automated, like black is where you could just hit go and it refactors them. And another really cool one that I found recently was sorcery.ai, uh, like source as in source code. Um, and it uses, I think it uses AI to predict or like better refactors for your code. So like if you've used the same if statement twice and it doesn't really make sense since your code's like this long, um, you can, it automatically refactors it into a nice way for something else. And if you can make those things run automatically, I'm personally, I'm way more um, likely to integrate that into the workflow. If it's ones, one that I personally can't seem to get a hold of is flake eight, where it just gives you a bunch of errors. Yeah. And I say, I just, I hit run and it works the way I wanted to for the specific use case. If flake eight throw on errors, okay. Uh, someone probably cares about them, but for this time, I don't have the energy or time to spend to go into those things and I, I just leave those things out. So I suppose there's not really many things that are negotiable for code quality coverage, but yeah, that's just in the space that I work in at least. Yeah, fair enough. I, I guess you could probably argue like, while so, like somebody else is maybe grinding through trying to figure that stuff, you're cranking out projects left and right. So, you know, you, to each their own, whatever you want to do. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> if you can spend that time where you spend a day working on all your flake eight errors or all your MyPy errors, while that might send, save you a week later on, most of the time with my applications, that never comes back. It's yeah. used for one project or application, and then it might be revived two or three years down the track to use for some other application. But that's probably it. They probably just leave it there. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's cool, man. 
Um, what is your message to someone that is not using version control? Um, I probably, probably not a big preacher on the version control side. Um, if you don't use it, I can totally see how it works. Um, I'm sure like you can bring up a bunch of examples or you could even just ask the person an example if they don't use it to say, oh, but how, what if you made this change and so on? And they'll go, oh, yeah, that would have been really good to know about. And then that sort of, if you can make someone else believe in a tool to use rather than just saying, oh, but it's got this good thing and that good thing, if you can show them an application where they would use it, I think they're probably more than more than twice as likely to actually use it. Hmm. Um, that's why I love all the packages like sorcery.io, which I started using a while ago. Um, it has just like a little animation or a GIF that just shows here's what you had before. Here's the, what would happen after you use this tool. And I was like, Oh, that's awesome. I want to use that. <laughs> and that, that had me sold. Uh, so I think the same thing applies for version control where I, I could say, I went back and I was like, Oh, what about if I forgot this part later on and I could go back and, see how it works and get get that information back so I could fix it for better later on. Um, mm. I, I find that's really where the power comes in. But I feel like when you're trying to suggest anything to anyone, if they can believe or see why they should use it, rather than just saying, here's the good things, here's the bad things, use it if you want, um, it's probably a way more engaging way to get someone to use something and mm. I, I i can totally understand the side of it from a marketing perspective as well in that for your if you spend a week building or 10 years building something you're someone's only going to be able to see what you've built for maybe 10 seconds 20 seconds if you can keep someone engaged for that time and say oh i could actually use this then that's way more powerful than seeing, oh, this is an ad and this thing does that thing good. Uh, I can't see how I can use it. Oh, well. Hmm. Yeah, that's some, that's some really cool insight. Um, alrighty. So what learning resources do you recommend to get up to speed with uh, Boca, I guess, but it could be data visualization in general? Um. Probably, I suppose it's a pretty hard one in that what separates people that are really great at data visualization and people that probably don't get the message across as well is you kind of always have to put yourself in the shoes of someone that doesn't, hasn't seen this before, doesn't understand any of what's gone into build it. And if they can relate, so if it's something that's very relatable, then that becomes so much more engaging. Mm. And I think the really the only way to get better at that sort of skill is to look at more infographics. So I'm, and 
no matter what your interest is, whether it's trains, birds, cars, I am positive that someone else has bought, like built an infographic or a data visualization that you can go and look at. And you could probably just even just note down what you liked, what you didn't like. And then that becomes an iterative thing so that when you're building an infographic for someone else, you'll go, oh, that doesn't really make sense if you show it like that. Why don't we show it like this? So I suppose one of the ones recently that, um, that I built was for a radar plot or a spider chart. Um, and its application is um, private to the company. But each of those spider charts was related to where it was in the world. So it had its longitude and latitude. Um, and what they had done previously was just showed spider chart, like a, a series of spider charts. Um, and it didn't really make sense. So we used, I think it was Folium and Plotly or Matplotlib. Mm-hmm. And you could make a little marker on a geo map like Google Maps, and you could open up multiple spider plots and see how it transitioned with respect to geolocation. Mm-hmm. And then that become that comes back to it's more engaging for the user that appreciates the data inside that. Well, I I may not understand why do they want to look at a spider chart. What's that got to do? That's that's up to them to appreciate. But if they can interact with that and go oh, but what about if I go to this market down here? What's that difference? Yeah. Then they'll be like, oh, yeah, this makes so much, I can draw more conclusions rather than just looking at spider charts on a PowerPoint slide and that's it. Mm-hmm. Folium, I've used, I've used that for just a handful of projects, but that's like a mapping, like a whole mapping thing, right? You can do yeah, like heat maps just, and... You can do any sort of, I think it's, it's really just a base for putting Google Maps or any sort of satellite imagery or terrain, streets, and then you just add markers or polygons, which could be used for chloroplasts or heat maps, which are just chloroplasts with rounded edges sometimes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Hmm. Crazy, man. Yeah, thanks for your insight on that. I think, uh, I mean, a lot of this... I, I work with data visualization and I'm, I'm learning stuff here. It's not, uh, I guess there's levels of, of, uh, where this goes. Like, yeah, you can crank out an Excel chart, but I mean, is that, um, you know, are people, could you do better? Like with the whole infographic thing? Like, is it, is it the way they want to digest it? And, um, I'm really appreciating the conversation we're having there. Thanks. <laughs> no, thank you very much. Thanks for the time. Yeah. Um, what, what is your message to your younger self? Um, the way the way I sort of look at it is, I don't I don't regret anything that I've done. I think I've just done what I wanted to. So I suppose the message is, just keep doing what you're doing. If you're happy where you are and what you're doing, and you're enjoying, and your mental health is a priority and your health and well-being, if you can prioritise those things and then the other priorities in your life, just keep doing what you're doing. If you're making a positive impact on other people's lives, that's what everyone should be alive for, I think. Hmm. Awesome, man. Thank you. 
And uh, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, the best, best, that, that's a hard one. <laughs> um, it's probably just for when you're trying to either explain something or have a conversation with anyone, the more simple and relatable you can make something, the more anyone will appreciate, no matter what topic you're talking about, whether it's programming or you're talking about how to grow grass or anything like that. Mm -hmm. The more simple, relatable, the more it's going to be appreciated. Because there's so many times and you can, you see this in the academic world a lot hmm. where people just, they're so smart and they're so clever and they just try and explain their concept to someone else and they just dive into this rabbit hole that probably only they understand. But if they can bring that back up some levels so that anyone can relate to it and then the people that want to know those little intricacies can you can further bring that on and on and on. That's what brings, like, separates people, whether, like, they're amazing or whether they're just okay. If they can explain topics as simply as possible so that anyone can understand, relate to, and then maybe extend with their own intuition, then all the power to them. Hmm. Yeah, I, I just reflect on some conversations that I've had at my work and I've seen, I've seen it happen where you get business people in the room. And as soon as the conversations, like if you start talking about like SQL or like these things, servers, it's just like the whole thing just falls apart. So be get becoming. (laughs) So there's a lot. I remember, I remember I was trying to explain to someone how um, Tor worked the private network, like the onion network. Mm-hmm. And I think I broke it all the way down into like, if someone has a packet of lollies and then they give it to that person, they give it to that person, they give it to that. Someone can understand it in that way. While if you said, Oh, the server connects to the DNS and then the DNS randomly <laughs> configurates, they go, Whoa, no, nah, I don't get it. Yeah. So I, I feel like that is a very underrated and really powerful skill is to be able to explain things in relatable terms. Mm. Yeah. And I, I'm, I admit I'm not perfect at it myself and I probably never, probably never will be. Um, and I probably don't think anyone is, but if you can try and keep that mindset or approach to things, you'll be much more successful in trying to get your idea or your solution across the line. Mm-hmm. Do you use, would, is it fair to say that you kind of deploy that when you're writing your blog posts or are your blogs, because they're for a different audience, you maybe approach that differently or? Um, I think for my, my personal blogs, they're sort of just ramblings to so that. I originally started blogging for my own benefit so that I could come back to things and understand how I did that. 12, 16 months ago. Um, but I suppose the more and more I go on and on with it, I always try and include a relatable topic and then probably the extension part where I really understand it 
And then I always try and engage with uh, colleagues, friends to see if they get at least something of it. Yeah. Which most of the time, sometimes for my friends that are outside of this space, they go, "You're I don't understand anything of this, but it's cool. I like it. I, <laughs> I, I saw the... I saw the graphic, I saw the GIF move, I understood what that done, that was enough for me. Um, and I think if I can at least get that message across, that's a win in my books. Hmm. Cool. Where, where do you get, like how, do, how does the GIF creation work? Is there some sort of library that actually just cranks that out or are you using some sort of like video recording software or like how does, the, how does that work? Um, so there is a lot of integrations with image magic and stuff like that into Matplotlib, Bokeh, Plotly, where you can build the interact or the, the GIFs. Um, I find more or less I just come back to, so there's Snipping Tool on Windows. I don't know if Snip and Sketch can do GIFs yet, but there's another one just called ShareX or GreenShot just want tools that extend on that functionality mm -hmm. and more or less they just have inbuilt screen, same way you would do a snipping tool that it makes a GIF out of it hmm. as it's back to that. I try and keep it at the workflow as simple as possible. If I can just record what I see on my screen so I can send that to someone else, that's a win. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. I I've used Greenshot uh, in the past, but I'm sure if you really want to figure it out, you you just need to come up with your own workflow and keep it as simple as possible. It's kind of the message that I'm hearing. Yeah. Awesome. I think when I, when I built my blog so that I could just save a file into Git and push it, uh, that was as simple as I got. And I loved that. I tried to go down this big path of branches and uh, release versions. And I actually, I, I did that for probably a year. And then the other day, someone was like, why don't you just have one folder called content and one folder called drafts and just move it into content when you want it to work? And I was like, yeah, it probably makes more sense. <laughs> and I just scrapped all of that and now I just have two folders. I'm like, this works so much better for me. Yeah. So when you, when you do the drafts, they're still, they're still up on GitHub. You just haven't, they're not showing on the uh, actual like website, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they're still just like Python files or Markdown files in GitHub, but they don't get pushed into the build configuration each week. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay, cool. Um, what is the most important book that we should read in 2020? It could be like a technical book or like a self, uh, like a personal development book. Um, the probably my favorite that I've read recently it's probably probably maybe two. Um, I really enjoyed the courage to be disliked. Cannot remember the author. Um, okay. So I did. I did write. I tried to write a review about every book I write on my blog as well. Okay. Um, so I, I did write a blog post on the review, but it's really about. Um, so there was Sigmund and Freud, who were psychologists in the nineteenth century, massive. Um, this is about another um, psychologist that in, tried to introduce the concept of Alderian psychology. 
and I just really, really resonated with that approach to life. Um, and the way the book was structured, it's like a conversation between a young person and a philosopher. And I would read it and the philosopher would bring up these things and they're, for most people, I suppose, for me at least, you would go, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, I don't get that at all. That, I don't, that makes, that's stupid. I wouldn't do that ever. And then I found myself time and time again as I continued through the chapter where they would have like this argument in written form, you would go, oh, no, that, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Oh, I get that now. Um, and there's so many like concepts in there that if you can change your perspective of the world in that way, I feel like you'll be so much more content with everything and your mental health be so much more improved. And that's a, that's a massive thing for me is mental health for everyone. Mm. You said there was two books you were recently reading? Oh, yeah. <laughs> The other one, the one, one I'm halfway through at the moment is probably from the more business perspective. Okay. And it's called um, Never Split the Difference. Oh, cool. Again, I can't remember the author, um, mm -hmm. but it, it's really like you get like hyped up in it because it's about an, a negotiator from the FBI and he's just talking about the best way to do negotiations. And like the time that he went to Harvard School for Law and he enjoyed in the master's negotiation course and he smoked all the students. Like they gave him everything he wanted in the negotiations. <laughs> and he's just talking about how he does those things and he's like talking about hostage situations that he did while he was in the FBI. And he, he just go, oh, this is really exciting. And you can see how you can integrate that into your own negotiations in business. Um, and I find both of those books have been really influential on me recently. Yeah. Cool, man. Thanks for sharing. That's one of the things I love about this podcast. I get to, I get weekly book recommendations from people. You wouldn't <laughs> be able to keep up with them. All. No, it's uh, it's tricky, <laughs> man. Um, as far as prioritizing learning, like self-development for me, I'm always, that's another thing I'm always prying about with people is like, how do you, you know, how do you, how are how are you making the best choice? Cause there's just like time is so finite and we're all wanting to better ourselves. So just giving people ideas, like I love opening up those cans of worms on the <laughs> podcast and, and uh, hopefully some light bulbs go off for some people. But do you actually, do you have any uh, uh, insight regarding like of all the things, like why did you kind of pick those books? Is it just because they're applicable. You thought they'd be applicable to this time in your life or like, how do you kind of prioritize uh, the things you ingest to improve yourself? Um, I suppose if I read it and I go, Oh yeah, that sounds really good. Um, I'll add it. I have like this sort of lists. I have so many lists. I, I really do. I exercise bullet journaling every day. Um, so every task that I have to do in life ever is all in a book or on like a list on Google Docs, or et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just add on to there. And then if I say, oh, I've got a big car ride or I've got to sit somewhere and wait for this time, I'll come back to that list and I'll go, which one sounds most exciting? And I'll go, that one sounds exciting. I'll read that one. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's that's just how I prioritize things, I suppose. Um, 
and if something if you get started in something you shouldn't feel ashamed to just drop it if you don't if you're not engaging with it not enjoying it that's it I'll, i'll just drop that 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 was actually my next question was um you know like if you're reading a book and you're halfway through it do you do you stick to it but i mean you basically just answered it it's like you don't feel guilty if it's not serving you and you're halfway through it if you've got you know a hundred books that are half read like you're you're all about like is this is this serving me if it's not like no guilt it's gone no guilt at all. That's, drop it. that's why i especially love the sort of books that are structured in like a handbook sort of style where you can just read the sections that are applicable or they at least excite you so you don't have to go through an entire thing to get the little key takeaways yeah or you could just read that's where i try and approach the reviews that i write are in the concept of can i just write a review so someone can get my key takeaways and if they resonate with someone then they could probably go and read the rest and get their own takeaways and then the intention i hopefully is there to make that spread out in a tree-like effect, but mm-hmm. if that happens, it happens. Yeah, cool. I'm glad we. I, I'm glad we went through. I wasn't planning on doing that, but uh, I often find myself kind of doing things because it's like you know I set out to do this. I'm just going to do it. But sometimes you need to you need to know when to pull the the cord the ripcord on it and just be like, we're done with this book. Yeah, <laughs> or it. other things in I'm, life. No, no shame, no shame at all. Yeah. Uh, getting back, uh, uh, the, uh, the courage to be disliked, I guess like that, that might, uh, you know, that might piss some people off if you're just like, uh, doing that sort of thing, but it's all about your mental health is what you're saying. Like if you're not, if it's not energizing you, it's, it's not, it's not, it shouldn't be worth your time. Yeah. I think everything should come back to people's health and well-being. And that's what everyone shouldn't like prioritize. Like if if you're not getting as anything out of this, that's going to help you. And like you, you feel bad about reading something or doing something, you can probably just drop it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's, that's probably not that great advice for someone that's like can't get a say. It's like it's a job they hate doing. Um, you can probably flip that on the side and give it more inspiration into furthering yourself by reading these things or doing tasks to try and get out of that situation. Mm -hmm. And if you find those things that you do to try and improve yourself, you enjoy as well, then it's just a flow on effect. Yeah. I love it, man. What, uh, what would you say is kind of like your goal setting, uh, regimen or like, do you, do you track it in a book or do you have an app or, do you just kind of like pick something to focus on and don't worry about it? Um, I think for goal setting, I'm sort of one of the concepts that's also in the courage to be disliked is don't look into the future. Don't look into the past. Hmm. Just live for today. So the only thing that I ever have on my priority list, and I found that exercising bullet journaling and that noting down everything you get that stuff out of your head. So it's not, oh, I've got to do this, that, and this, that today. It's just on the paper in the, or the app or anything like that. You could just use notepad on your phone and 
it's all there and you don't have to think about it and you feel much clearer in your mind that you don't have to think about all these other things going on at once. Hmm. And then you can just say, what am I going to do today? And then you go, oh, I've got to do those things. I'll do those. And then that's your goals for the day. Take it one day at a time. Don't look too far into the future. Don't look into your past. And I feel like you'll be just much more content with yourself if you can just take things one day at a time. Then you're not feeling anxious about the future. You're not feeling regretful about the past. Hmm. That's powerful, Um, man. Works for me. Might not work for other people. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people that are reflecting on their, their past like that and, um, worried about the future. And I mean, this sounds like a strategy where just, it's not even an element of your daily, like if you can eliminate those things out of your day, like, can you imagine how much you would get done if you spend zero time thinking about that? Like, that's pretty awesome. Imagine that. And like bringing, (laughs) saying that to someone just as though as I was reading it in the book is very like, whoa, this is me. I do this every day. You're attacking me personally. (laughs) But then you go on and further you you nail it down and you go, no, that would really improve things if I didn't do that sort of stuff. Hmm. Cool. So going into the rest of 2020, what are like the top programming languages that you think are good? Uh, Like if you're wanting to do data visualization, data science, building solutions for clients, like what is the toolbox that that we should be kind of uh, keeping on our radar for programming languages? Um, I think the way I sort of categorize it, if you're in the space of your rapid prototyping and you want to rapidly iterate tests or like see if things work out, um, I really love Python for that reason because mm-hmm. I can really quickly iterate through things and see if they work. Um, if you're building something that's going to be more, has to be more robust and solid, that it's going to work time and time again and you can make it really extensible for the future. I'm really, really liking the idea and the concept behind Rust, but also C, C++, Java. Those are going to have a massive resurgence. I think that the sort of journey that everyone's gone on is that we've gone through this really high rapid prototization of things with Python and other languages like that. And now those things are kind of, as they're starting to get more sticky and they're sticking around more, people are going to start moving back to more core concepts that take longer to build and develop, but they're more robust in the future. Uh, I think a great example of that is Dropbox. Dropbox is known for a very Python-focused company. Mm -hmm. They hired uh, Guido Van Rossum for a fairly long time, so that's saying a lot. Um, And they came out the other day and said that they'd moved the sync engine. So the thing that works out if your file on your computer matches the one in the cloud repository, they moved that to Rust because it had, there were so many things that made it really quick to build the Python implementation of it, but they were starting to unravel as they got further on and on. Hmm. So they've, they've wow. moved it to Rust. So I feel like that's a very powerful thing to say. Um, the thing that I've focused for the rest of 2020 really on 
is improving either my implementing data visualizations, probably just the visualization side and interaction in JavaScript, because that's something you can distribute easily on the web rather than just a video in Python. Or if you want to make an interactive visualization in Python, sometimes that's you've got to set up like a backend server and stuff like that. So I'm going to try and focus on JavaScript for the visualization side, but I always come back to doing the processing and the desktop interactions back in Python. So that's that's for my my understanding. Cool. Yeah. The uh, I I don't know. Maybe you've written a blog post on this or. Would you ever consider doing something along the lines of kind of conducting an inventory of like the, like the what is out there for interactive visualization and then I don't know maybe maybe somebody's done it before but when I because I the reason why I asked is I went down this path and I was like man there's so much out there there's like this one called Vega that has interact- Vega Light yeah Vega Light by Jake Vander Plus I'm pretty sure you did that one. Okay. Yeah. I know it was some sort of like universe, but they're doing something with like JSON. It's like standardizing. It was some sort of standardization initiative where you feed chart configuration in like JSON or something like that. It was. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's all I, these tools. The, out there. the author of Vega and Vega, I'm pretty sure he's the author, Jake Vanderplus. Um, he's massive. You see his name pop up all the time in your, if you're in the Python data visualization space. Um, he did a really good uh, talk. I'm pretty sure it was at PyCon US where he just did a, like a map of where all the different visualization packages and how they interact with each other. Huh, okay. And that is, that is like really awesome for understanding. And I also saw one on Twitter the other day where someone did something very similar for JavaScript. Um, his name was Vladimir Elevsky. He did one very similar, I think it was on Medium, um, and it was a similar approach to JavaScript visualizations, hmm. which I'll be looking into more and more this year as I try and make things more distributable and interactive on the web. Yeah. And you'll be blogging about that too, right? So we can borrow your Every brain. Uh, yeah. Every week. <laughs> you can find all the mistakes that I make and pick out the nuggets that I find. Cool. Yeah, that's... Uh... You're you're uh, in, inspirational with the the blog creation thing. I uh, I feel like I need to get my button gear with that. But um, uh, to each their own. You just have to find what you enjoy in life, and that's the main point of it. Yeah, awesome, man. So if you compare yourself to everyone else every day, you're only going to keep dragging yourself down. Ooh, that's that's powerful, man. Yeah. So <laughs> you can only so you what what comparisons do you make with yourself then? I guess. And I try my best to have none at all, only to try and essentially verse myself to try and make myself better at the next thing I do. Like if my visualizations at the moment, maybe some of them aren't as interactive as I would have hoped. So I want to try and better myself at deploying online JavaScript and ones that can run in the browser independently of the server, because I find that's a very effective way of being distributable. Mm-hmm. If you don't need to set up any backend resources to run that. Um, so I really want to, I'm really excited to get further into that. And like the what little ticker that I want for my blog post that shows how many words I want to understand how to make a project 
that I can share on Pipe BI so someone can go pip install and stuff like that. So that's the sort of stuff that I get really excited about. And mm-hmm. I compare myself to myself this morning where I didn't know how to do that, but I looked into just how to set up a project and I'll probably going to think I'm going to try using poetry and see how that goes. Cause that looks really um, strong for setting up projects. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. So with all the topics that we've covered today, I was wondering what is kind of like the message that you want to leave the audience with uh, before we part ways? Uh, I think the message is do what you enjoy. Um, If something makes you feel good and you like doing it, don't let anyone stop you. Try, I know it's hard, but try not to compare yourself to either your past self, future self, and live in the moment. Um, Prioritise your mental health and your family and your loved ones over anything else. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. And uh, the platform is yours now for the call to action. Where do they go to find you? Uh, what should they do immediately once they finish the podcast inter- or listening to this podcast? Uh, you can go to jackmcu.dev. That's my blog. Um, I run a software freelance company called Cyberlytica, uh, C-Y-B-R-L-Y-T-I-C-A. Uh, .com.au, you can reach me on that. Feel free to reach me out on any of my socials like LinkedIn, Twitter, GitHub, etc. Um, I'm always welcome for people to bring up ideas or things they want to see me cover in blog posts or so that we can explore things together. Uh, that's what I love about the community is the feedback and the interaction that I get. Uh, that just sparks me on to do more and more blog posts and just watch it evolve. Mm-hmm. Awesome, man. Well, we'll make sure they have links uh, to all those things in the show notes. And with that being said, I guess that that's our show today. So thank you very much for uh, appearing on the Profitable Python and letting us borrow your brain. No, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's amazing what you do. I love all the podcasters out there that spend their time building these resources for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. All right, talk soon. Thanks, Ben. Mm-hmm.